I'm Tavis Smiley. I'm delighted to have you hanging out with us today in the third and final hour of our program. Uh, my board out, Miles, is continuing the Stevie Wonder theme. Uh, we just had in our second hour today an amazing conversation about a new art exhibit uh, that is about to start touring the country, celebrating the genius of one Stevie Wonder. It's an amazing exhibit of sculpture and art, paintings and photographs. It's an amazing exhibit here in L.A. now through the end of this month, December 31, at the uh, Andaz Hotel. So if you're going to be in the Southern California area, you'll want to check out the Stevie Wonder exhibit, a celebration of Stevie, uh, here in L.A. through December 31. And then that exhibit will tour the country uh, in the uh, coming year. And so we had a great conversation with the curators of that exhibit. Sol and uh, Jania uh, were here. Uh, Aponte is her last name. And uh, we had a great hour talking with them and playing a lot of Stevie music. And I guess Miles ain't got out of his system yet. So uh, Stevie is still playing. That said, you can never offend me with the music of Stevie Wonder. Uh, in this hour, this final hour today, a conversation about murder in Boston, roots, rampage, and reckoning. It is a multi-part uh, series that chronicles the complex history of race-based hostilities in the city of Boston. Um, I don't need to tell you if you've if you've, uh, if you've uh, know anything about Boston or have ever been. It's a great town, uh, a great sports town to be sure, um, a great town for politics to be sure, with a, an amazing legacy uh, uh, from the Kennedys uh, and beyond. Um, never a city have I been to that has more great academic institutions. Uh, it's an amazing city, great food and all of that, and yet it is one of America's most segregated cities. Uh, one could argue that uh, one of the uh, more racist cities in this country, certainly in its past. And so Boston, not unlike most cities, has a complicated story. And um, uh, Jason Heyer, um, who is the director and producer of this project, does an amazing job exploring uh, the events in this city uh, that have allowed us to regard Boston as we do. And I'm delighted to have Jason on this program to talk about his series, Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. Jason, how are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you, Tavis? Man, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. Um, you just heard me sort of riffing on, on my views uh, over the years about, about Boston. Did I say anything that you want to argue with? Anything, anything I said that's inaccurate about the city of Boston? No, I think that um, as Brian McGrory, who is the former editor of the, the Boston Globe, who was in our doc, said, it's a, a city of paradoxes mm. in that it's a bastion of education and technology and progressive politics and liberal politics and birthplace of the revolution and, um, and one of the epicenters of um, abolition. And yet it has this reputation and there is this simmering underbelly of uh, racial tensions and, and racial ignorance in some pockets. So as a Bostonian myself, born and raised in the suburbs of Boston, I've always been interested in exploring that dichotomy. Mm -hmm. um, in what ways um, is that dichotomy, to use your phrase, Jason, in what ways is that dichotomy um, different? in Boston, you think, than other American cities. I mean, Boston, I mean, I want to talk about Boston, and I know you you are a Bostonian, so you didn't do this to demonize your city in any way, but it seems to me that a documentary can be done about any city in America that doesn't show its its best side. Um, so to that dichotomy you referenced, how is Boston, you think, uniquely different from other cities when it comes to race-based hostilities? 
Well, I've only lived in, in New York and Boston. Um, I was in L.A. for a short time, but I can tell you, have, having grown up in Boston, that the, the, the lines, when I grew up, I was born in 76. So the lines in Boston in, in the 80s and 90s were a lot sharper. There were a lot, there, the edges were a lot sharper from neighborhood to neighborhood. You knew what neighborhood you were in based on the demographics of the people who lived there. Now, that's a lot different now with gentrification and just uh, luckily, I'm happy to say progression over the years mm -hmm. that attitudes have changed and policies and leadership has changed over the years. But when I was growing up, it was very clear that if you were in certain parts of Dorchester, this was a white area. Uh, other parts of Dorchester or Mattapan or Roxbury or Mission Hill, which we focus on on this documentary, that was likely to be a black and brown area. Mm -hmm. uh, and talking to other people for this documentary about where they grew up and where they lived before they came to live in Boston, they said it was a noticeable difference um, that every city has a bit of natural segregation, but in Boston, uh, it's on a different level. Mm. Um, what, what, what's the source um, uh, to your mind, and, what, and what's the documentary share with us about the source source of these racial hostilities in this city? Well, we could have done 10 parts. It's a three-part documentary. If we did, you know, 8, 10, 12 parts, you go all the way back to Red Line, and you can go all the way back to the Revolutionary War if you want to draw lines that far back. We were trying to examine the modern racial history of Boston through the lens of this one murder case. Mm -hmm. And as I tell our editors and producers all the time, the main story is the highway. You get off on exits. You can digress a little bit to give a little bit of flavor and a little bit of context to that main highway, but you get to get back on the highway. You, you can't stray too far from that story. I tell them that you can stop to eat, but you can't stay overnight. And our main highway story was this murder um, that was uh, committed. Yeah. Well, I don't want to give too much away. We'll discuss that later on. But, th but there's a woman named Carol DeMady Stewart who died of a, a gunshot wound to the head. Her unborn child succumbed 17 days later, and there was a manhunt for uh, the person who her husband said this, said did this, which was, according to him, a black man who had carjacked them and led them into the Mission Hill Project. So we went as far back as what Howard Bryant, who's in our documentary, calls the modern racial history of Boston, beginning with busing in 1974. And that's, to, to, to put it very briefly, uh, a decision to force force integration in public schools in the Boston area yeah. to equalize the learning experiences of white and black students throughout the city. Um, we will talk about that modern racial history of Boston when we come forward. You heard uh, Jason uh, Hare already tee up that they tell the story of the complex history of race relations in race-based hostilities, to be more exact. In Boston, they tell that story through the lens of this one murder case. Uh, he gave you some of it. We'll unpack more when we come forward. It's a it's a pretty amazing story, uh, a horrific story about this murder case and all that comes off of that. Uh, when you hear this story, it won't be unfamiliar to many of you. Some of you may recall the story, but um, this is not uh, uncommon uh, in, uh, in 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 the storyline of what it means to be black in America. Uh, the series is called Murder in Boston. Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. And speaking of Boston, that's a good excuse to play a little new edition. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Just 
interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Sounds, Sounds different. different, huh? This, this is Tavis Smiley. Hopefully, you see what I what I did there. We played a new edition. We're talking about Boston in this hour, and Michael Bivens hails from Boston, and so does Donna Summer. I was on a plane a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact, and um, long flight back to Los Angeles, and I was able to watch a um, documentary about Donna Summer that I had never seen. It was so amazing. I met her a couple times uh, in her life, uh, but I learned so much about Donna Summer from that documentary and what it meant for her growing up in Boston. So uh, we're talking in this hour with Jason Hare about this amazing series on HBO called Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning, which chronicles the complex history of race-based hostilities in the city. But we got to weave in something good about Boston. And so you can't get better than Michael Bibbins and New Edition and Donna Summer and some other great artists from the city of Boston. But I uh, thought I'd just weave that in uh, as we move through this hour. So there are... Three episodes of this. Let me just give you a quick uh, overview, and then we'll let Jason unpack this for us. Um, three episodes. The first is called Roots. The second is called Rampage. The third is called Reckoning. The series was produced in association, as Jason said, with the Boston. Uh, 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 he, he mentioned, actually, the Boston Globe. Um, there are some people connected to the Globe who are in this uh, series as well. So you hear from some some pretty notables um, in the city who know the city well. The first episode aired on HBO on Monday. Uh, the next two will air on Monday, December the 11th, and Monday, December 18th. So there are two more episodes to go in case you missed the first one. You can always go back and check it out. But it's a three-part uh, documentary series, again, called Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. And uh, Jason Hare is um, is uh, is on top of this. Um, so, Jason, that said, um, tell me uh, and the audience, we got, we got, we got you know, the, the rest of this hour, of course. We're not just in a two- or three-minute uh Short take. Uh, we've got time to unpack this. Uh, tell the audience, tell me about this murder case, uh, which becomes the lens through which we talk about the history of race in modern Boston. Yeah, October 23rd, 1990. I remember it vividly. Um, I was only a kid. I was I was 13. I just turned 14 at that point. But um, I'm sorry, October 23rd, 1989. My bad. Mm-hmm. I just turned 13. Um a husband and a wife are leaving a birthing class at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. The wife is seven months pregnant, and there's an infamous call from their car phone. Back then, there were no cell phones, but this guy, Chuck Stewart, had a, a car phone. He called 911 and said, my wife's been shot, I've been shot. And he didn't know where they were. He said that a gunman burst into their car put a gun to his head and forced him to drive into the corner of the Mission Hill projects, which were just down the road, not five blocks away from the hospital they had just left. Uh, the wife died that evening of her gunshot wounds to the head. Chuck uh, was fighting for his life. Half of his intestines were, were blown out, essentially. And uh, their baby was saved by cesarean section. He would later succumb 17 days later. And there was an all-out manhunt um, in almost every black neighborhood in Boston, but particularly in Mission Hill, for this 5'10", 5'11", thin black man, around 30 years old, with a raspy voice. Um, and you can imagine how big that description is. It, it, was, it was described that he was wearing an Adidas tracksuit, which was um, very in vogue at the time. So it was a vague, generic description. And the police um, 
ran roughshod through the Mission Hill Project looking for this gunman. And it was all that anyone talked about in Boston for the 10 weeks of the search for this quote-unquote killer. Chuck was in um, intensive care for six to eight weeks. And once he came out of intensive care, he identified a career criminal from Mission Hill named Willie Bennett in a lineup. And um, that's really whose story we're exploring through these three episodes in the series is the community of Mission Hill and the, the Bennett family and what was done to both uh, the community and the family as the police were trying to get this, uh, this suspect. Let's talk about the community. Um, give us a better sense of what police did uh, in Mission Hill, um, in this community. Uh, what, 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 t- talk about the impact of this search of that they were, that they were uh, engaging. Well, the context is important, and we digress a bit in episode one to give you a little bit more context, but you're, you're on the, the tail end of the beginning of the crack era. Um, crack had spread from New York to Boston in around 1987-88. This crime happened in 1989, and you were seeing unprecedented levels of homicides, particularly uh, among young black men uh, in the city of Boston. Mm-hmm. So they had instituted a policy of stop and frisk, which... Uh, the Boston police used pretty liberally. Um, I, I think it's almost euphemistic to say stop and frisk, or they like to call it stop, question, and frisk. It was really stopping young black men for no discernible reason other than to harass them um, and to violate their rights, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. So that's the the atmosphere that this is all happening in when the search for this killer um, is being undertaken. So you have tremendous pressure from the media, tremendous pressure from the mayor's office, to find the person who did this, because as we illustrate in episode one, the fear of the mayor's office and the fear of, of all leadership in Boston was that white suburbanites would stop coming into the city because it's not, it's, it's, you know, oh my God, they're killing quote unquote us too. Now it's not just uh, contained to black neighborhoods. It's that nobody is safe. So this was the ultimate nightmare scenario for leadership in Boston with a crime situation that had gotten out of control. Yep. Um, give me a better sense of what happens in Boston. I'm talking now specifically, uh, Jason, about the media. What happens when a white couple uh, is shot uh, allegedly at the hands of a black assailant, given uh, the racial backstory in this particular city? It's a racially segregated city, as I mentioned uh, earlier, and you acknowledge. But when a white couple, um, a pregnant white woman, no less, uh, accuse a black male assailant of doing this, um, how, do, how, how does that roll out media-wise in the city of Boston? Uh, aggressively and with, with increasing disregard for responsibility, journalistic responsibility. When you're looking at, and they were, they were dubbed the Camelot couple, mm-hmm. Chuck and Carol Stewart. They, they both came from lower middle class, blue collar neighborhoods in Boston. They had worked their way up. Uh, Carol was a lawyer in a wealthy uh, they, they lived in a wealthy suburb, and Carol was a lawyer in another wealthy suburb at a private company. And, and Chuck was the general manager of Cacus Furs, which was a furrier on Newbury Street, which is the classiest street in, in all of Boston for people who know the city. Mm-hmm. So they had, quote-unquote, made it. And they're seven months pregnant, very excited to have this baby. And their Carol's life was cut down, and, and Chuck was fighting for his, and, and the baby was killed as well. So they were the most sympathetic figures possible in the media at that point. So no one, it would be sacrilege for anyone in the media to publicly question the integrity of of Chuck's statements at that point. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to give this story away, too much of it, and <laughs> I'm letting you do most of the talking. Of course, it's your conversation anyway. Yeah. I'm, I'm moving through this gingerly, uh, but I, I, I said uh, moments ago on this program, as you heard, that these stories are not unfamiliar to black people. And the black folk listed to this program right now, um, they can probably already figured out, um, you know, where this story is headed when a white couple accuses, accuses a black assailant of uh, uh, doing something so horrendous and all hell breaks loose in the city of Boston. That's all I'll say about that. But the audience, um, I'm sure, is already on to on to this. Let me just ask you, um, when uh, Mr. Stewart uh, makes this allegation that he and his pregnant wife were shot by this black assailant. Um, were there any doubts, any doubts at all raised by anybody, including inside the police department as this story unfolded? Again, I'm trying not to give too much away here, but there were all, yeah. there are all, there are all kinds of things that, that, that one sees in retrospect that should have been clues then, but was it, was, was there anybody, uh, in any way questioning what this white male, Mr. Stewart, said? Well, as you can expect, um, and this is really the first time that a deep dive has been done on this case. It's been 34 years, and mm -hmm. that's how sensitive a topic this is still in Boston, is that no one has really touched that third rail. Mm -hmm. But as you can expect, um, the members of the black community that we interviewed immediately smelled a rat. And yet, no one came forward, no, no leader in the Boston community and, and no media member in Boston came forward and offered any sort of skepticism. Chuck's story was bought hook, line, and sinker. And also remember, there was no precedent for this. So you have, as, as Michelle Caruso, who was one of the lone journalistic skeptics, we have her in our story thinking that the leadership in Boston was thinking inside a box, and that was a white male, Irish, Italian, Italian box that they were thinking of. And they had a very difficult time thinking that anything except what this other white male Irish guy had said was the gospel truth. Um, and there was no precedent, like I said, for it. So that this, this had never happened before. Now, if this happens, immediately people can, can pause and say, wait a second, let's make sure we don't get Chuck stewarded here. But at the time, it was so horrific and so monstrous that all you wanted to do was get this killer off the streets and bring some semblance of justice to this family and to this man whose life had been destroyed by this quote unquote black assailant. Yeah. So no, to answer your question, th there was not an ounce of skepticism that was voiced publicly in the wake of this crime. The part that troubles me, um, having seen um, the series myself again, trying not to give too much away here is that there were Jason, as you know, it's just your project. You, you're the, you're the showrunner here. There were, there, there were there were holes uh, in this story from the very beginning, but the police mm -hmm. were so intent on finding this black assailant that they looked the other way. Um, even the media yeah. in, in Boston were so riveted by this story that they didn't do their job, I believe, as journalists. Um, what say you about that part of the story? Well, from the media's perspective, and, and this is back pre-internet, this seems like the Stone Ages now when we talk about it. It was only 34 years ago, which isn't that long a time uh, in the grand scheme of things. But you had three main news stations in, in the city, Channel 4, 5, and 7, and then you had the Herald and the Globe. And there was a lot of competition between all five of those entities to be first with whatever scoop 
was out there to be had, especially newspapers. The, the, the television journalists had only a few hours or a few minutes at the top of the hour at 6 and 11 every night to give you an update on where the investigation was. But the investigative teams at the Herald and the Globe had all day every day to chase this down. And a lot of their sources were from the police department. So if the police department are, are believing a lie and they're pursuing um, a suspect who fits the description of that lie, and they are leaking information to the print journalists, then the print journalists are printing lies. And pretty soon you can imagine how big this snowball gets and how, how troubling a scenario it was. Mm-hmm. So then you end up getting underage kids who had started a small rumor that it might be someone from their neighborhood that snowballs into these kids being brought into uh, police headquarters, their, their rights being violated, not being offered an attorney and being threatened and intimidated into mm-hmm. giving false statements so that we could wrap this case up with, with a nice bow and find the black man with a raspy voice who did this, this and everyone could move on. But I'm sorry. Good. Jesse. Everybody can move Go on. Go ahead and finish. Everybody can move on. Finish your point. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm, I'm good. Okay, no, I, I was, I, I didn't, I, I'm sorry for the interruption. I was just, I was thinking out loud, and forgive me for that. As you were telling that part of the story, you, you know, my mind immediately went to the Central Park Five. The parallels between what they did to these black boys in Boston and what we now know they did to these black boys, um, these young black men in, in in New York, the Central Park Five. The parallels are eerie, uh, Jason. I don't think that it's it's too far from the realm of possibility to think that Chuck Stewart saw that story and recognized the the terror that was unfolding on the streets of Boston every, every night for the previous year or so and put two and two together and said, Hey, this is easy. I can just blame a black man and all attention will be diverted from me. I mean, now, now we're down the road, Tavis, we're, we're discussing the outcome of the case and I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I think that anyone who doesn't put two and two together by the end of episode one in this story probably yeah. needs to look at themselves a little bit more and their prejudices a little bit more. But I, I'm not interested in this being some sort of big twisty whodunit. I sure. think that no, I got it. when people see the description of this case, they know who did it. Yep. Episode one is Roots. Uh, it aired on Monday, December 4th, and thankfully HBO uh, replays stuff over and over again. Episode one is called Roots. Um, it's already aired. Episode two is called Rampage. It airs Monday, December the 11th. Uh, and episode three is called Reckoning. It airs Monday, December 18th. Jason Hare is our guest talking about this series. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. More when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like You can't talk about Boston without some Bobby Brown. We play some new edition. Michael Bivens played some Donna Summer. You can't talk about Boston without playing some Bobby Brown. Uh, that would be the best part of uh, black culture and black genius out of the city of Boston. Uh, but this conversation uh, is showing another side of Boston. It's called Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning, produced and directed by Jason Hare. Uh, by the way, he's the one that did uh, HBO's Andre the Giant. I mean, it's not, Jason's a bad boy. He's a bad boy, man. He did, he did Andre the Giant, and he did the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary that everybody saw. Uh, that's Jason, and now he has Murder in Boston. 
Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning, it is my great honor uh, to be in conversation with uh, Mr. Hare on this program, even right now. Um, I'll, I'll ask him a couple of things about those things maybe later uh, in this hour before I lose him, but I want to stay focused on Boston at the moment. Uh, it's on HBO, three parts. Roots, episode one, already aired Monday, December 4th. Uh, episode two, Rampage, December the 11th, Monday. Monday, December 18th, Reckoning, episode three. So Roots, Rampage, Reckoning, three-part series on HBO. Check it out and get more into the story. But since you are a brilliant, brilliant audience, you've already figured this out anyway, in case you weren't around to remember this. Uh, but uh, to Jason's point, it's the first time, 30-plus years later, that a deep dive has been done uh, into what uh, Charles Stewart, this white man, said happened to him and his wife. Uh, and... Um, as you've already figured out, the story, his story didn't hold up in the end. You've already figured that out. And, Jason, to that point, one of the things that black folks said, I mean, it's a fascinating piece of work you've done here. Congratulations once again. But one of the things that you know, black people always got a nose for stuff like this, man. To your point, we can smell a rat because we've been so discriminated against, so disenfranchised, so demonized, so lied on. The one thing that black folk are really good at is sniffing out a lie. And one of, the, one of the things that gave this away for black folk early on uh, in Boston uh, all these decades ago was that this so-called black assailant shot the woman, the pregnant woman, in the head but left the white man living. Now, this was supposed to be a robbery. That's what, that was part of the story. It was a robbery. But they shot yep. his wife, his pregnant wife, in the head and left him living, and that did not pass the smell test with Negroes, Jason. Uh, no, that's your word. I would not use that word. But, <laughs> I know, um, I know, no, I know. <laughs> it, it, it did not pass the smell test in, in a lot of the community. Um, and also, there were other things about the crime. Uh, Dart Adams, who's an, an author and a historian and a Boston native, um, gave us a wonderful interview that we used across these three episodes. And what he said was, we didn't get a chance to go really into this in, in the doc, but he had told me during our interview that whenever these kind of crimes were committed, holdups, carjackings and holdups, carjackings weren't really that big a thing back then in, mm -hmm. in that era, but holdups specifically, there was always a plan of escape. And oftentimes those crimes happened on the border lines of those neighborhoods that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. So if it was a, a white neighborhood and a black neighborhood and there was a borderline of a main street, it happened near that main street because um, if it's a black assailant, as Dart told us, they would know how to get, how to navigate their neighborhood and to get, go through an alley and hop a fence and get back in. They always had an escape plan. If you look at the map of where this crime supposedly happened, there was no escape for that assailant. And so when Chuck described this to the police and said that the assailant was a black man with a raspy voice in an Adidas tracksuit with a red stripe, and he ran into the Mission Hill projects, you can imagine what the police's first response was. Well, mm -hmm. he's here somewhere. Let's knock on, and I, I use that uh, phrase gently, let's knock on every door and try and see if we can find a 5'10", 5'11", black man with a raspy voice. Well, you can imagine that, that the list is probably in the thousands yeah. of uh, Boston's neighborhoods that would satisfy that description. And Stuart knew what he was doing. He yeah. knew that if it was vague enough, that would take attention off him for, for long enough. Yeah. Um, so... Go ahead, sorry. No, no. So, so Bill Bratton, Bill Bratton uh, has been police chief everywhere in this country. <laughs> He's been police yeah, chief in has. Boston, police chief in New York, police chief here in L.A. This program is nationally syndicated, but as you know, I'm flagshipped in L.A. So we're heard across the country, yep. but L.A. is where I, where I sit right now. And he was police chief here in this city as well. And I was fascinated uh, by Bill Bratton and his take on the racism that he had seen over decades uh, that persisted throughout this city. What, what do you make of Bratton's comments? 
Well, Bratton, um, Bratton was pretty open with us about how racist the Boston Police Department as an entity and as an institution was uh, when he came on the scene in the 1970s. He was the youngest person who had been um, promoted to being the head of the Boston police. He later on moved on to the Metro Police, which, which worked alongside the Boston police, and then came back after this crime and all of it ensued afterwards, the fallout of this crime and, and the reckoning that we explored in episode three. He came back to Boston and became commissioner and instituted, if there's a silver lining from, from, this, from that era, with this being the... Um, the most egregious example of injustice in that era, police injustice. If there's a silver lining, it, it's what, what reform was made in the wake of it. Uh, and Bratton came in and instituted community policing. He got um, a lot more cops on the street talking to residents by, by regular practice. He got the, the um, community leaders and, and uh, church leaders, spiritual leaders involved in doing similar um, policing and patrolling. And they got the, the murder rate, the um, youth homicide rate, all the way down to zero by 1996, and which, which is called the Boston Miracle. So that's another thing I mentioned to you before. If we had done 8, 10, 12 episodes, we could get into the ebb and flow of yeah. violence and justice in Boston since 1990. But it, that was the most challenging aspect of this, of this documentary, there, the, twofold. There were two challenges. One was getting anyone to talk because yeah. this was a blight on the city. And a huge error was made by several institutions. So getting anyone to talk from either the families involved or the institutions involved was very challenging. And next was how to how to wrap up the series and go from 1990 to 2023 and, and say how far Boston has come within the last five minutes of a three-hour talk. Yep. Um, I'll give you a couple seconds when we come forward to talk about uh, how far the city has come. Before I do that, though, I want to talk about Raymond Flynn. Uh, I met him a couple times. Um, he was mayor of Boston at the time. I want to be talk about uh, the police department and Brad coming back later to be chief after having been a cop on the beat. Uh, but what was the mayor's office saying or doing in the midst of all of this? We'll talk about that. Uh, uh, and a great deal more to get to uh, as we um, as we continue our conversation with uh, Jason Hare, the brother who did The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, did Andre the Giant. His latest is Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. It's on HBO right now. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. From the Merc Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. Watching my time, they're getting away from me. Uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating piece of work that Jason Hare has done. It's called Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning, three-part series, December 4, December 11, December 18. Uh, if you missed the first one, you can catch it on HBO. Uh, but uh, two and three are on the way. Uh, Monday, December the 11th, Rampage, uh, and the final piece, Reckoning, Monday, December 18th, again, all on HBO. Um, so, Jason, I, I mentioned a moment ago that um, while we talked about the police department, of course, going crazy, we talked about the media and all the things that they missed in this story that turned out not to be anywhere near true. Um, what was Ray Flynn in the mayor's office doing and saying at this time? Well, the shame of it is that Flynn was seen as a uniter in the city um, when he when he ran for mayor. He was he was in his uh, second term at the time. Um, and when he had run for mayor, he ran as a racial uniter. He ran on economic populism and he was inheriting a city that was still feeling the deep, deep wounds uh, and racial tensions and hostilities from the busing era. So he did a tremendous job um, building a progressive coalition of black leaders in the city 
And by all accounts, black and white of people we talked to, things were those tensions were beginning to subside and things were getting better. Ray had a, a basketball background. Uh, he won a national championship at Providence and, and played for a cup of coffee with the Boston Celtics. So he played in a lot of black neighborhoods as a kid and was just a natural leader and a natural uniter. This case, though, happened, as we mentioned before, in the wake of the Boston police's institution of stop and frisk. And those close to the mayor, Mayor Flynn is now 92 years old and, and declined to participate um, in our project. He's getting a little bit on in years. But Neil Sullivan was his policy chief, and he served as Mayor Flynn's proxy in, in this piece. And, and I owe a huge debt of gratitude to him for participating and being candid with us. And yeah. he said that for all they had accomplished, they lost control of the police. So Flynn came out the morning after the shooting, actually the night of the shooting, and said, we're going to put every available police officer on the street to find the man who matches the description that Chuck Stewart had given. Mm-hmm. Um, quickly here, t- tell me how you, I'm asking now a question of you, not about the doc per se. How did you process what you heard uh, and saw from the Bennett family? And this is the family of the guy who Chuck Stewart picked out in a lineup, this black assailant. Mm-hmm. Um, it was challenging. I, I, I'm, I'm close with a lot of the Bennett family members now because I've spent the better part of two years um, going up to Boston, getting to know them far before cameras rolled. We were uh, making every effort to show them that their story was in good hands. And I would tell this thing responsibly and accurately, um, you know, for, for them and with them. So it was shocking. And, and when we realized not just that Chuck had had uh, accused this man, Willie Bennett, of doing this or picked him out of a lineup and described someone who matched his description, but the, the police knew all along and people in Chuck's circle knew all along and no one did anything about this. The most galling fact of this entire case, and, and now that you know the lid's off and we're talking about the aftermath as well, which we cover in episode three, they held Willie Bennett um, after a rumor had surfaced in Mission Hill that he might be the one responsible. They held Willie Bennett on a very specious uh, charge of robbing a video store in neighboring Brookline, Massachusetts, which mm-hmm. was right over the border sure. uh, in Boston from Mission Hill. And they held him there so they could basically, they could know where he was and that, that he would not flee as they were trying to put together a case where they could indict him for this murder. So they didn't really want him for the video store robbery, even though he matched the description of the robber. Yeah. They wanted to hold him and make sure that they could locate him if and when they had to indict him. Mm-hmm. So, once things unfolded as they unfolded, Willie was exonerated immediately, but he still had to stand trial for that video store robbery, which I told you was specious at best. Sure. And he ended up serving 12 years for that robbery. Yeah. Once I found that out, that's when I made I redoubled my efforts to talk to the Bennett family to try to convince them to participate because I really felt like the world had to know just how deep this injustice ran. No, they, they you know, you know how it goes. We're going, we're going to get you for something. We are going to get you for something. And I don't make comparisons here, but many people feel that way about OJ. Um, whether you think he did or didn't do it, uh, they didn't stop till they got him on something. And I heard a comedian once say, you know you're in trouble when you get uh, arrested and sent to prison for stealing your own stuff. He went to get his stuff back and still found himself in prison for years. They're going to get you one way or the other. Uh, I'm making no assessment about whether you think he did or didn't do it. That's not my point. My point is they will not, they will not stop until they get you on something, even if it's jaywalking. Our remaining moments uh, with Jason Hare when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. Black, black, black. 
You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. Just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Jason Hare, who is the uh, showrunner. Uh, the producer behind this uh, amazing HBO three-part series called Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. Uh, all three parts um, on consecutive Mondays, December 4. Uh, episode 1 is called Roots, was called, is called Roots. Episode 2, Rampage, Monday, December the 11th. Episode 3, Reckoning, Monday, December 18th. All at 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern and Pacific. Just got about two and a half minutes left here, Jason. What do you hope? I want to ask you two things, though, in the time I have. One, um, what do you hope that the takeaways will be about this documentary series exploring this polarizing uh, murder case in 1989. I would love for people to um, change their perceptions about just what, just how gross the injustice was um, at the time. I mean, I, I think that people know that the city was lied to and that we were all duped, including the institutions in the city, the media, yeah. city hall, and the police department. But I, I don't know that they fully appreciate the lingering effect that this has on the community of Mission Hill and on the Bennett family. Could something like this happen in Boston today? I think similar something similar could could always happen. There there could definitely be a rush to judgment, and there could definitely be uh, people who who inform situations and inform investigations based on their prejudices. I think that something as egregious as this would be difficult to happen because this is such a comparison point. Every time um, someone gets blamed for a crime, people now know to look at the quote-unquote victim, especially in this case, the victim who was not as grievously injured as his partner. Yeah. So never say never. And I, I, I don't, the, the big mistake, the two big mistakes I could, I could make in this case, in this documentary would be to say that everything's better and it would never happen again. Yeah. But I could also make the mistake and say nothing has changed and, and Boston will forever be what it was. Yeah. Neither one of those is true. And as you know, all stories are a lot more nuanced than that. This is not fair to ask you in 30 seconds, uh, but we're in basketball season. For those of us who are basketball fans, um, uh, Scotty Pippen's uh, comments notwithstanding, uh, I assume that you are still happy in the rearview mirror with what you did with the last dance that everybody saw. Uh, yeah, we're, our team is, is tremendously proud of it. That feels like a million years ago in a lot of ways uh, with where this country was then in terms of lockdown and all that. But yeah. um that's a project that I will never forget, and it was one that I was I was privileged um, to direct. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I will be forever grateful for them for for trusting me with their story, not just Michael, but the 105 other people that we interviewed as well. Indeed, indeed, uh, it was a great piece of work, as is everything that Jason puts his hands on, uh, whether it's Andre the Giant or The Last Dance about Michael Jordan or this new one, Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. Jason, congrats on a great piece of work. Uh, thank you for the conversation. I really appreciate your time, sir. Happy holidays. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. You too. Thank you, sir.